Before we start the show, just a word from our sponsor, Undeniable Press. For all your screen printing needs, located in the Corktown District of Detroit, Michigan. If you ever need any t-shirts or any other little promo accessories, posters, or whatnot printed up for you, go to Undeniable Press. They're located, once again, in the Corktown District of Detroit, Michigan. And you can uh, reach them at facebook.com slash undeniablepressdetroit. And those same guys who do Undeniable Press also have a clothing line called 20 by 20 Apparel. It's very much wrestling themed. All sorts of nostalgic themes in regards to the history of wrestling. And you can go check out their clothing line at 20x20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20, apparel.com. Now let's start the show. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bummy, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laughing, yelling what it goes. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grind and shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kicks, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. We are on episode 89, and this week's guest is author, speaker, and comic book writer, BJ Mendelson. He gained notoriety over his humorous yet engaging books, Social Media is Bullshit, and Privacy, and How to Get It Back. And you can pretty much take a guess about what those books are about. During our interview, we talked about his comic books, a national story of minor significance, and Vengeance Nevada, and the lessons that come with it about self-help and mental health. We also dive into the world of privacy and social media. We talk about connecting with your audience and also pro wrestling. So let's get into the interview with BJ Mendelson. You know, I was kind of uh, you know, going through all the stuff that you sent me, and what I would like to, you know, dive in first is this comic that you have coming out, uh, A National Story of Minor Significance. Oh, yeah, sure. This is like, as you say in the, um, in the comic, it's like a memoir, you know, wrapped around as like as a self-help uh, comic. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's really nice to like talk about things and then also have visuals that are very like matter of fact, you know, it's just like. <laughs> It's very literal. Like you went into your mind with that. You know, what was the yeah. significance about like, you know, what was your sort of idea about going and doing this comic? So I've been talking for a while about doing a book called Don't Be Evil, uh, which was supposed to be like, uh, so I'm an atheist. And so there's always this debate of, well, if you're an atheist, how, you, how are you supposed to live a good life? Like if you don't have religion in your life, how is it that you're supposed to be a good, good citizen? So I was writing this book called Don't Be Evil to answer that. And I was like, all right, but this is great. 
but it works better as a comic. I, th I think it's funnier as a comic. I think it allows you to do a lot more. Like like you mentioned, we literally go inside my head for the, for the first issue. So I just felt like that that allowed me to play with things a bit better. And it was also a little more memorable. I think that you know people are going to read it and they'll walk away remembering stuff from it as opposed to, oh, that was a cool book. You know, then you won't remember what you read like three months from now. Yeah, when after you kind of set up things, and it, the one of the first things that you talk about is doubt, having self doubt. You know, you know why was it so important to start with that? That was the thing that I've heard the most uh, since social media's bullshit came out. You know, when that book came out, I was on the road, traveled all over the world, uh, gave presentations, and I kept hearing over and over again, uh, "Yeah, I got this great idea, but I don't know if I'm the person to do it." And that, like I've heard that. In Russia, I, I heard that in Louisiana, I heard that in Los Angeles and in London. So clearly, like, it's not, you know, restricted to just us. It's something that, that's globally, like, it's a very human thing to have doubt about the things you want to do, the things you want to work on. So that's why that was the first thing out of the gate that I took on. When you kind of hear, you know, those self-doubts coming from, even whether it's just yourself or coming from other creatives, you know, what's the sort of, the answer to that, you know, what, what sort of advice would you give to other people? Well, if you don't do it, no one else will. Or uh, more likely, you'll see a shittier version of the thing that, that you want to do, <laughs> uh, which is what, what happens more often than not. Like, suddenly someone had that idea, uh, which is the same idea I had, but it was just crappy. <laughs> like, it was just bad. So uh, if you don't do it, someone will do it or do a shittier version is generally what I tell people. Right. And there's, yeah, there was something else in, in this comic that you, you know, touched on and it's about having that 10 year plan. Right. You know, why do you believe in that so much? I think five is too short. I used to tell people it was five years, but I found that five years really goes by in a blink of an eye. Uh, but after 10, I also found that people get antsy, like people get complacent, they get bored and they, they don't know what to do with themselves. And you, you just see a lot of boredom that happens at like that decade mark. So it's like, all right, well, how long do you have a plan for 10 years? And after 10 years, your life is probably going to be completely different anyway. And I'll give you a great example. This past Friday, uh, June 7th, was the 10-year anniversary of when I first got married. So if you look at my life in 2018 versus my life in 2008, it's completely different. <laughs> right. Like, there is nothing that's even remotely the same from that time. So 10 years is, is like, a life, like a mini lifetime and a lot can happen. So that's why I settled on a number. In in this comic, you you know you you were saying that you never you know dreamed about making some sort of funny um, marketing book, yeah. or whatever that you always wanted to be like someone like George Carlin. You know when you're kind of like setting up those like ten year plans, how much wiggle room do you have to uh, put in there for adjustments? I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of room to adjust. It's more like saying to yourself, okay, if it takes. Like, let's say it takes three years to write a book, research a book, and get it published. So you know that that's your first three-year chunk. And then you also know, all right, well, if you want to be on TV, that it's going to take about a year to establish your credibility. So you have, like, those things that anchor. Like, I know within the 10 years I'm going to do this three-year chunk on the book. But you can certainly move that three-year chunk up a little bit or back a little bit. Or do what I did here where I was like, all right, the next book is going to be Don't Be Evil. Oh, shit, it works better as a comic. So it's more like having those big tent poles to work towards. That is, you know, day one, day one, uh, I have to do X, Y, and Z. Day two, I have to do X, Y, and Z. 
how open-minded do you have to be to sort of make sure that you can be flexible? Because there's some people that get little headstrong about their plans and then they never get to them. Well, I mean, the example I always tell people is I almost died uh, <laughs> in the middle of like a 10-year plan. You know, I had a heart attack, uh, I had like massive heart surgery. And so uh, flexibility is important. I, I What I tell people is it's good to have a plan and you should have a plan, but don't hold on to it too tightly uh, because there's like shit that you can't control that's going to happen to you. No matter, no matter how well planned you have it, there are things that's going to happen. So have the plan, but be flexible, if that makes sense. Like I know those two things contradict, but... Uh, that's generally what I tell people is, you know, you should know where you're going, but just be prepared. If like, let's say you're in an accident and you go broke or something, you know, paying for everything, then you got to be prepared for that. Yeah. When you have, when you have a comic like a national story of minor significance, you know, it's very much, it's very much humorous, but you're talking about some serious shit, you know, there's, um, you know, definitely this week there's been, um, this past week, there's been a lot in the headlines with these you know, these big name suicides that have been going on. Right. There's a lot more talk about getting rid of the stigma behind mental health. You know, how important it is, how important is it to sort of, you know, bring humor into this subject to make it sort of easier to digest and make it much more easier to talk about? I think it's very important. I think that we, it doesn't really matter what the topic is. People generally get uncomfortable when you talk about serious things, you know, whatever serious might be to, to the people listening to this, like politics, religion, uh, self-care, you know, mental health, those are guns or things like that are like serious issues. And so I, I think being able to approach it from a funny perspective sort of disarms people and lets you talk about it in a way that that's not seen as aggressive or not seen as, you know, you're taking this firm line in the sand and fuck you if you disagree with me. <laughs> Uh, whereas if you're joking about it, it's like, oh, all right, well, this is funny. We could talk about it. And I think with this comic, uh, you also sort of just open up about a few things that like people don't necessarily feel comfortable to talk about themselves, like having, like you call it the sex closet, you know, just all <laughs> right. those like weird, all those, you know, sexual thoughts that, you know, all of us do have, you know, it's normal but people don't like to talk about it. And, you know, what do you do with all of that stuff? And what do you do with all those people from your past that you were in relationships that you're still thinking about, you know? So I'm glad you sort of touched on those things in the comic. Yeah, I tried, I really tried to do a lot. I mean, I did a lot of research for Don't Be Evil before it became a comic book. I, I, there was a lot of work on uh, just people and self-help and psychology. And so what I found is there's, there's certain universal themes of uh, things that regardless of who you are and where you're from, that we all sort of deal with and struggle with. And so I really tried my best to, to make it so that you could pick up a book and be like, oh, I got that thought too. And so the sex closet is definitely one of those things where it's like, all right, well, uh, I, I certainly had a good experience with this one person and I'm going to hold on to that. I mean, we all do it. So that, that was really why, or that's really what the approach was for the book. When, um, when you were doing all that research for it, what were some things that you learned that maybe you didn't uh, you know, know about? And what were some things you learned where you're like, oh, yeah, I went through that, but I just didn't understand? Yeah, I'll, for a lot of it, for me, uh, there's a book called Adult Children of Alcoholics. Uh, so there was a lot of stuff where as I was reading it, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's totally me. Like, that's, uh, they talk about, you know, like the children, one of them will be a clown and one of them will become a caretaker. 
And I was reading about the clan. And I was like, oh, this is like me to a T. All the little things I've thought and felt, I just never knew how to define it, came from that book. Uh, so like that was a big thing. And then the other thing is just repetition. Like you can, pro- you really can program your brain, but you got to stick with it. And the biggest thing is that people don't stick with it. Like they'll try something and be like, this is hard. And then they'll give up and they'll walk away. It's like podcasting. Like it takes a solid year of just sucking at podcasting to get really good at it. Uh, before you're really comfortable doing the show. And all you need to do is look at the list of comics podcasters, and, and uh, I'd say at least a quarter of them, you know, they start out real strong, they start out for like three months, and then they just drop off the map because uh, they don't stay consistent about it. And so consistency was a big thing that came up over and over again. Uh, you know, if you have OCD like I do, uh, there are these things that you can do, but you have to be consistent at doing it. Otherwise, you know, you're just back to square one. Previously, you know, you... Uh kind of gained some notoriety from some of the books that you uh, you written. You had The End of Privacy, then you had Social Media's Bullshit. Why did you, you know, want to dive into these subjects that are actually, you know, very hot topics now into our, uh, into our society, but you were kind of starting to do that before it all became this sort of hot topic? Yeah, so, uh, I, you know, it just it came, out of, it came out of work, right? So, like, Social Media's Bullshit and the privacy book came out of working with tech companies, working with advertising agencies and, and watching all the like strange and bizarre uh, bullshitty things that they were doing to justify getting like $250,000 a month uh, from the brands that they were working with. So, uh, and so the psychology stuff also kind of came out of that where it was like, all right, you know, you need to be very good at working with, and understanding people to do marketing. And so a lot of it was just me working backwards. Like the privacy book was very specific. Social media is bullshit, which came out first, was more industry-wide. And then this is sort of me taking the lens back further and going, all right, put the marketing stuff aside. We're just talking about people interacting with people. So all those books sort of interconnect with each other, all the books and comic books. And that's sort of what pushed me in that direction. You've, uh, you know, you've toured, you've been on TV in regards to these books. You know, what is mostly the topics or the questions that are posed to you in regards to what you've talked about in these books? Uh, yeah, social media, where is it going? <laughs> I, I get that a lot, uh, which reminds me of like an old George Carlin joke because he was doing an interview and they were like, what's the one thing that you get asked all the time? He's like, comedy and where is it going? And he's like, I don't know. You know it's, I saw it waiting for the 215 bus. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's like one of those strange questions that you get asked. So I get asked that a lot, like, where's it all going? Um, I get asked a lot about like it, the implication of politics and social media. And I keep saying over and over again, it's, it's not as dramatic as we think. And even though all the evidence is there to back me up, I still get, I still get that question over and over again of like, how important do you think social media was in the 2000 election or the 2016 election or the 2012 election? It's like, it's really not what you guys think it is. But yeah, those are the things that generally come up a lot. And like, you know, people don't ask that because they're ignorant. They they ask that because it makes for a good narrative that people understand. Sort of like that, yeah, the idea you just said about it's not as dramatic. Um, Do you think just in this sort of, uh, in our age of, social media and the internet so much uh you know things are being processed thrown out do you feel like a lot of things just get blown out of proportion just for newsworthy clips oh yeah uh so how do i answer this (laughs) i'll give you like a brief answer so uh there's a section in the book in social media is bullshit that deals with like the economics of the media today 
And basically, all you need to know is that, you know, attention sells. So even the New York Times, like if something is, quote unquote, going viral, they're, they're going to run a story about it because they want the page views because that's what the advertisers want. So we've got like this fucked business model uh, that no one really understands, by the way. Like, that's the crazy thing is like no one really understands how all those ad exchanges work. And yet we're all feeding into it. So what does happen because of that, uh, even if it's like a vocal minority on Twitter, for better or worse, it doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. Uh, if they're talking about something, you will see it picked up and carried in the media outlet. And I think that that's what really blows things out of proportion. I, sometimes that's for the best, you know, like Black Lives Matter, uh, a lot of the stuff with the LGBT comic community are, are things that you wouldn't have otherwise heard about. Right. If, if not for social media. So there's some good that comes out of it. But then there's like some bad, right? So then you get like the Gamergate. Or, uh, or whatever was happening just recently. I think they were calling it Comicsgate, uh, which was also like this thing that it was blown out of proportion because it made for a great story. Uh, so yeah, for better or worse, that's sort of how our the media industry works. And for that reason, things get blown up. There's a lot of talk, you know, how like they say like technology and social media sort of is killing our patients and we're addicted to these, um, you know, these social media networks. But there's also been studies where saying that maybe that's blown out of proportion a little yeah. bit because if you actually look at the time that people are on social media, it really isn't that different to, to like our previous generation watching TV or doing something else. Do you feel like, like that sort of narrative that like social media is distracting us too much is a bit blown out of proportion? Yeah, it sort of reminds me of, uh, so I just turned 35, so I'm a child in the 90s. Uh, so it reminds me of when Mortal Kombat first came out. Right. And people were losing their shit and saying, oh my God, violent video games are corrupting our youth and, and making them evil. And before that, it was heavy metal and rap music. And, <laughs> right. Uh, like, there's, there's always been like, X is bad. Let's talk about whatever X is throughout American history. That goes back to after the Civil War. Uh, where there was like this big religious movement to to basically like reinvent ourselves and make ourselves better. And so ever since then, we were like, all right, well, let's blame something because we're not where we want to be. So back then it was like alcohol are, are the things that they wanted, to, you know, and, which is crazy because I, I think that these things are excuses to not actually solve the problems. Like for all the talk they had in the 1890s about alcohol being bad for you. No one stopped and talked about racism being bad. <laughs> right. Like that wasn't the conversation that they had. They were yeah. like, oh no, it's okay to be racist, but alcohol is really bad. So uh, that to me is just, you know, like social media is bad for people. It's the same shit. It's just recycled like over a hundred years later. And do you and do you think with like sort of the way social media is in regards to things like mental health, do you feel like what's the effect of that? Because you know there's a lot of people who sort of yeah. take on to this mental health narrative and then sort of use it as an armor to themselves and sort of want everybody else to like, you know, change their ways. They'll be like, I'm depressed. So you have to change for me. You know, how right. does social media sort of work into that? It's, it's, it's sort of like this obnoxious entitlement and it's not a generational thing. A lot of people like to blame, you know, my generation, the millennials and Gen Z uh, for being, but it's really just, there's a lot of entitlement on the internet of X makes me feel sad. Therefore you should feel sad about it. Or, uh, you know, like my least favorite term is problematic. <laughs> right. It's like, 
Yeah, because now everything is problematic. Like, it's sort of like, okay, well, yes, there's good and bad to everything. Like, if you really want to dig deep enough, Ezra Pound was a notorious anti-Semite. Uh, that doesn't make his writing any less beautiful. It just makes him an asshole. You know, like, you have to be able to separate. Uh, same with H.L. Mencken and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft was definitely kind of racist. But, you know, what I'm getting at is that there's good and bad with everything. And so... Uh, the problem with the internet is now if a group of people don't like something, therefore you can't like it, and uh, they are empowered by the media looking for page views and attention, and it sort of gets blown out of proportion. I don't look at things that way at all. I think that it's sort of the same deal with marketing where everybody's different, and that's sort of the same deal with like, I can't give you marketing advice that's going to work for the next person listening to this because there's so many factors that are completely different for each person. All I can do is tell you what worked for me or what makes me upset or what makes me happy. And hopefully you take something from that. So maybe you go, you know what, Ezra Pound really is an asshole. Uh, the next time I read something from him, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna look at it the same way. But I'm not saying to you, you can't enjoy his stuff. So yeah, I do think like there's, there's like this uh, entitlement that goes on where if someone feels one way, then you have to feel that way. And then if you're not, then they shun you from a group. And that happens both for conservatives and liberals. So like that's not a, you know, either or thing. It's for both. Uh, that's not going to go away anytime soon. As long as the media, as long as the algorithms award uh, rapid attention and lots of clicks and page views. These days, how can people use social media to their benefit? You know, especially when we're having these, you know, crazy algorithms that are going on yeah. and then you got to pay money if you actually want to see, right. you know, your stuff to be seen more, you know, they've def definitely like grabbed a hold of us and then we're like, then they're like, oh, now you got to pay now for yep. stuff like that. How can people use the social media to their benefit without being sort of stranglehold by what they're trying to do to us? So just I'll give like a comics uh, related answer. Like, for example, if you put the word happy birthday or congratulations into Facebook. Uh, your post is more likely to be seen by your friends and your connections because the algorithm knows happy birthday, congratulations are, are these big things to look for. If you put in the word Kickstarter it, or any sort of outbound link, like it knows the flag that link and not show people because they don't want them leaving the platform. So the trick is really to get off of, this, of the social platforms and keep them for like, it's okay to have them for reach out. Like I use it for reach out all the time. Like if you are trying to reach out to a journalist in America, at least there's nothing better than Twitter because they're all addicted to it. So that like, that's a good use case for social media. But what you want to do is once you've already got that customer through the door, or once you've already made that connection is you, you get their email or do what I do where I give out my phone number on my website. And that's how I stay in touch with people. I say, just text me and uh, I'll let you know if you want to know if I got something going on, I'll send you a text because I know 99% of texts sent are read. You know, there's no algorithm that's going to stop my text from not getting to you. So uh, you just have to understand that, like, you know, with, with any of the social media platforms, it's not in their interest to reward you or show the thing that you're working on. It's in their interest to keep people on the system. So it's okay for some things, but definitely you want to pull that customer into somewhere else that you have control over. Yeah, like, like I come from, like, a music scene background, a music journalism background, and yeah, I'm, I'm 37 now. So like I grew up like, you know, eighties and nineties music scenes, yeah. you know, paying attention to them two thousands. And I feel like to a certain extent, you know, because of all of that, 
we also have to kind of go back to like the days of, you know, flyering and doing yeah. those sort of hand to hand sort of promotions again, when it people kind of got away from that for a little while because of the internet and because the internet was a bit more freer for a while. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I saw it just today. I think it was on business insider. Uh, don't hold me to that, but they were talking about the advertisers pulling money away from Facebook and putting money back into like radio ads. Like radio, radio never went away, man. Like they just, <laughs> they just got caught up in this hype around the social media platforms and started dumping their money into it. So yeah, uh, the flyers work. Hand to hand stuff still works. Word of mouth. Uh, Jonah Berger put out a book called Contagious, and he points out that ninety-seven percent of offline marketing occurs through word of mouth, and that's just people like that's like Metallica when they first got their start. It was by handing out cassette tapes. Right. That had them doing covers. And that's how Metallica got the stars. People are like, oh, this is really fucking good. That stuff never went away. We just stopped talking about it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's, uh, the, you know, look, I, I booked a lot of concerts in the early 2000s. I booked 54 of them. And I did use MySpace back when it worked. Because yeah. all these, the, the trick is, like, what, if you get on a social platform early enough, it will probably work for about six months to a year. And then once everyone finds out about it, it won't work anymore. Because it's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's just the network is so big yeah. that it's not, that it becomes useless. But the thing that we did that really drove people to those shows was handing out flyers and just having the bands promoted and you know having me go out and do radio ads. The radio ads work every single time. So it's like the old school stuff is what I'm getting at. Uh, that's really like still very effective. Right. Yeah. During those uh, those sort of prime years of MySpace. The way they had everything set up for music was so awesome. Yeah. Because you could go down to the to your locale and see the other bands in your area that were also getting the most hits on there. And then you could reach out to them and then you could collaborate. It right. was something that was so unique to that time and it was actually so useful and helped a lot of bands, you know, get on together. Yeah, I think a lot of people it's you because know, MySpace isn't cool, right? So no one talks about that anymore. Uh, and it really started life as a Friendster knockoff. Like they sat down one weekend. I don't know if people know this, but like the company that created MySpace was not starting in the garage. Like they were selling hand cream and all <laughs> sorts of like shitty spam products. <laughs> and one weekend they were like, hey, Friendster's really big. Let's copy it. And that's where MySpace came from was they just ripped it off. And then they went and got like Tila Tequila and all the popular people from Friendster to come over to MySpace. But anyway, yeah, like at people do not give it the credit that it deserves for focusing on music. And that's really where it took off in its early, early age. And it, for a while it was popular and, and useful. And even Facebook, like when Facebook was college only, you could put up a flyer, you know, that they used to call them Facebook flyers. Yeah. And you can get a pretty good response rate and you can see actual people coming out because the network wasn't swamped with like millions and millions of connections. Uh, so it's just another example of like when these things are small, they're useful, but the second that they blow up, uh, like MySpace after a certain point became useless. Yeah. Like it just got out of control. And so, uh, that's just what happened to all these platforms. Right. And you, uh, you mentioned, you know, a little bit ago about, you know, how you sort of connect with your, uh, with your audience, you know, when you're out and about, you know, whether you're doing speeches or comic cons or whatever you're going towards, you know, what, you know, what kind of conversations are you having with the people that come up to you? You know, whether it's about your books or your comics, you know, how do you sort of, you know, pitch them what you're doing without being so being overbearing? <laughs> uh, I usually like 
I, I usually like to fuck with people. I was just like, I was talking about this the other day, uh, my friend Jackie, we're, we, we're doing like a, you know, I started a Patreon thing the other day. And so we're doing like a, a bonus show for people that subscribe to it. And the thing we were talking about was like, on a first date, I'm the guy that would show up in like an astronaut costume <laughs> just to see what would happen. Just right. to see, like, if they go along with it, or they'd be like, "What the fuck?" Or, uh, so that's generally how I approach it. Is like, I when I do these presentations, you know, I'm wearing pro wrestling t-shirts. I'm not wearing a suit. Like, I look very approachable, and I usually will approach them with some kind of joke. Like when people say, "What's the name of your book?" I go, "Oh, it's social media is bullshit." They'll start laughing, <laughs> and like that's my way. I I never walk up to people in a confrontational way, and like that's sort of the trick is just to use humor. Like, that's what I've been using over and over and over again. Like, that's the theme of, uh, you know, even with a national story of my significance, I'm using humor to talk about mental health. So with marketing, uh, it's called social media is bullshit because I'm using humor to get my foot in the door so that we can have this larger conversation of uh, the Internet and what it does and does not do. Because we're usually not very honest about what it doesn't do. And so that's that's sort of the, the way that I get into things. Right. Yeah, like, um, yeah, it, it's crazy crazy like um probably the past few this year is when i first started i finally started going to more and more comic cons sure. and like i kind of just kind of stick to like talking with people in the artist alley section i like talking with the the creators yeah and what's kind of cool about that is um with a lot of them yeah they're trying to sell me on something but i'm not feeling like pushed into anything a lot of people are just having some nice conversations you know, giving me the spiel about, you know, what their book is about or whatnot. You know, how important is it to just have like a friendly conversation with the people who might buy your book? Uh, it's 99% of sales. Honestly, <laughs> like the trick, the trick to sales is that nobody, if you just walk up or you just put out a table and you're like, hey, buy my shit. No one, no one's going to do it. They're just like, fuck you. I got, I got things to do, man. But if you can convince them that it's in their best interest to buy your stuff, then they'll buy it, but you you won't get to that unless you actually just talk to them because you might find in talking to them, okay, you're not you're not the person that would enjoy this book. Like if someone says to me, I don't like swear words, I'm like, okay, you may not want to read mine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's okay. Uh, so yeah, it, honestly, like that's almost the entire battle is just having that conversation and just being a decent human, which is where the title "Don't Be Evil" came from, because uh, I think so many people think that. They have to have like these forced impersonal conversations, especially at cons, where I'm sort of like, no, that's not how sales works. Sales is 99% just talking to people like you would uh, a friend. And if it just so happens that you've got something they need, great. And if you don't, don't feel bad. Just don't force it on them. And that's that's a trick. So I'm going to do that. Like I'm doing my first, uh, I'm going to buy a table for my first con next year in Buffalo, uh, the Nickel City Con. And it's a small enough convention where I figure if I fuck up or if I do something bad, uh, like wear an astronaut costume at my table, uh, you know, it's not like if I did at Emerald City where there's a lot of people there. Um, so I do also recommend like starting small, also, uh, and, and sort of testing things out too. Like if you if you want to get really good at sales, the trick is when you're waiting in line to get like on the bus or something, just talk to the person next to you. Right, I've heard that. Um a lot lately in some of the other podcasts that I've been yep. listening to that if you're like really bad at like small talk, just practice on people like that you see like in your, yeah. you're doing your regular shit during the day, you know? 
because you'll never see those people again. Right. So, so they're like, God, that guy's a dick. Like, it's not going to matter, right? Because you'll never see him again. That's like my, my thing is I make faces at people on the subway. Uh, <laughs> like, I wait until the door is closing and I know that they're not getting in. Right. And as soon as it seals, I'll go like, <laughs> like I'll just fuck with them and make a face. And the reason why I do it is usually they laugh, uh, but also because you will never see those people again. Uh, and it's sort of the same deal with like if you are uncomfortable talking to people. Most people are. Right? Most people really are uncomfortable talking to strangers. Uh, just just test it out and try it out over and over again so you get good. Right. Now let's talk about this other comic that you have. It's Avengers uh, uh, sure. Nevada. What's the story behind that? Yeah. So Avengers Nevada came out of a couple places. Uh, the first is that uh, I'm a big Ghost Rider fan. But I always thought until recently anyway, Ghost Rider was really boring. And the example I always give of like creative teams not knowing what to do with Ghost Rider because he was too powerful uh, is during the Infinity Gauntlet. Like the Infinity Gauntlet came out at the height of Ghost Rider's popularity because he was really huge in the early 90s along with the other anti-heroes. And Ghost Rider is nowhere to be found. Like in the Infinity Gauntlet, he is nowhere to be found in that entire six-issue crossover. I don't even think he's in Infinity War. Uh, don't hold me to that, but I don't think that he is. And that just sort of shows you that they had no idea what to do with this character because he was just... He was cool looking, but he was too powerful. Yeah, I've, I've heard other I've heard other people say that were like, were yeah. like Ghost Rider. He looks cool, but no one's really done a lot with him that's actually cool. Yeah, it's because he's 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 too powerful. Like it's you have literally someone that was empowered by Satan, right, to to go and do things. So it probably doesn't get much more powerful than that uh, within the Marvel universe, except for maybe like Galactus or something, uh, and even then. So I think it puts people in a corner. And so I was like, all right, well, how do you make Ghost Rider interesting? Um, one, we'll make it a woman. Uh, two, we'll make him the villain. Because I think that Ghost Rider is better when it, when he's up against something as opposed to just being a protagonist. Like, just following Ghost Rider around is not interesting. But following Ghost Rider, if he's on the defensive because there's, like, these groups that are after him and they want something, makes for an interesting story and makes it kind of compelling. And then three, making a miniseries. Because I think Ghost Rider's not, like, a character that lends itself to an ongoing series. So I was like, all right, that's what we're going to do. And so that's what led to Venge Nevada. And then the second thing was I'm a big fan of the Venture Brothers. And uh, I almost died between seasons. Like, I was in the hospital when season five came on. I was like, you know what? By the time this comes back, I'll probably be dead. So... <laughs> I was like, all right, I want something with big cast of characters that's fun, that's got this mythology, but it's also can be kind of serious. And so that's what Vengeance Nevada is. It's really a mashup of like Ghost Rider and the Venture Brothers and uh, just seeing if I can make the character interesting. Right. Yeah. I, um, I, was, I was checking out the, the issue that you sent me and it was kind of funny. Like there's all this action going around, but like the dialogue was about some like normal stuff about kids. Yeah. Yeah. And what, you know, I wanted characters that just talk to my, so my problem with a lot of uh, the big two comics right now uh, is there's, there's a lot of handholding. Like there's a lot of explaining everything, which I don't think is always necessary. And then there's also just a lot of bad dialogue. Uh, like right now I'm a big, uh, I, I really enjoy the new Avengers series, but I don't enjoy that. Like Ghost Rider's written like Spider-Man. Like, you know, he's, he's very jokey and it's like, all right, but that's, that's Spider-Man. That's not Ghost Rider. And so, I want the characters that sort of just talk like normal people and don't talk like a stock superhero kind of character. And so it was I think it was important for them to just be talking to each other and then contrast that with other stuff that was going on. 
Right, yeah, because I like, yeah, when I first started reading it, I'm like, I had to go back and start over again because I was like, oh, what's going on here? Like, it wasn't like, yeah. that, it wasn't that hand holding thing. It was just like, oh, there's like two different things going on at the same time, you know? So, like, the art is very much as important as the, uh, the dialogue in this comic book. Yeah, I wanted something that you had to go back and look at a few times to really, so like, the ending of the series is in the first issue. Uh, it's something that, and if you go back and read it a second time, there's little things that you did not catch the first time. So I, I really wanted something that, uh, because I knew it would take a while between issues because of how expensive it is to put out. It's like, all right, well, I want something that, that has a high uh, replay value. Right. And so the only way to do that was to, to, to structure it a certain way. How did you originally get into, you know, wanting to be a writer? Uh I've been doing it since the beginning. Uh, you know, I mentioned adult children of alcoholics, and they talk about uh, kids that escape into fantasy or look for like creative outlets uh, to express themselves because you know the, a, a parent is not around in the way that they should be. And so for me, yeah. you know, I'm I'm that classic textbook case. So I got into writing very early on, and I I just stuck with it. Well, what was sort of your escape during that time? You know, what was that fantasy going on during that time? Uh, it was definitely porn and superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> it was those two things that, uh, yeah, I, and pro wrestling, I think, also. I, those three things is really what I what I escaped into. <laughs> yeah, and you had two of those in your uh, in your other comic yeah. book. They, and, then, and you made mention of that, you know, the the, the porn and the superheroes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it's it's you know that a natural story is one of those books where you kind of have to just put all your cards on the table, otherwise it won't work. I think <laughs> people are very good at detecting bullshit at least on an individual level we're good at detecting bullshit so i thought it was important to just sort of lay it all out there uh then i also got the the pro wrestling comic book but uh that we've stuck on patreon because it's one of those things where it's like man vengeance nevada is the priority and it costs about four thousand dollars an issue a national story we're sort of testing to see like what happens and if it sells well and it does well uh but i was like if i if i do another comic and i know it's gonna run four to five thousand dollars an issue uh, I got to find another way to pay for it. And so we do have a pro wrestling comic that's up on the Patreon. I'll talk more about that one. I'm a big wrestling fan. so Cool. <laughs> How do you feel about Roman Reigns? Uh, I'm not really. It's, I always, you know, he, he's always like cool, like a part of the shield, but outside yeah. of that. But no, he's, he is like a phenomenal talent, but it's one of those things where, um, like a lot of people say, it's like it's being pushed on us all a little bit too hard. Right. And... Like, I and I, this is like, this is something that I always like, um, a comparison that I make because I, you know, I come from like the music scene, the hip hop scene, and sure. everything. And I feel like in rap music these days, like, so many artists are being like sort of pushed on us the same way that Roman Reigns gets pushed on wrestling fans. So I'm like, whenever I'm like, you know, talking about how I don't like a lot of the new rap these days, I always be like, to any wrestling fan, I'm like, okay, just think about Roman Reigns and how they get he gets pushed on us. If every rap artist was the same way, yeah. <laughs> so that's how I, I sort of feel about it. Well, I like that. I think that's a great analogy because you know, like, there's definitely big studios and labels that uh, invest a lot of time and money into their acts. You know, they they definitely want you to listen to them. So I think that's a great analogy. Uh, the reason why I ask is that it just sort of my frustration with what was happening in WWE led to. Uh, an interest in women's wrestling and the independent scene, which is something I wasn't really okay. into 
Uh, so I was like, all right, well, look, what if we do something that's that mixed superheroes with professional wrestling and, and do those two things work in such a way that, that you can get away with it? Because I think it could go very wrong very quickly. Yeah. Like if, if you go too hard in one direction or the other. And so that's really what Jobbers is about. It's like it's it's about an independent women's wrestling organization that just so happens to be based in like post-apocalyptic New York. <laughs> and uh, the this girl who comes in on the first day and they have all these plans for her, they, it turns out her mother is a super villain. And so it's like, all right, let's let's see if we could do, let's see if we could pull this off. So uh, that's Jobbers. I really like it. I already have like the whole thing planned out. Uh, but because if you're an independent creator, shit's expensive. You know, I, I stuck it on the Patreon uh, just to see. One, because you know, I, I'm not a big person that believes in Kickstarter Patreon. Like I've never been a fan of those things, but I realized I shouldn't, I shouldn't shit talk either unless I've used them. Right. Like I'm, I'm a big believer that if you're going to shit talk something, at least have the experience to, to be able to shit talk it. So uh, that, that's my big experiment like this summer and fall is to put this comic, this pro wrestling superhero comic up on Patreon and see uh, if it gets traction or not. And then if it doesn't, then I can at least talk about uh, my experience in the way that's educated as opposed to don't do that. <laughs> right. Where did you um, sort of draw your inspiration from that, you know, in regards to indie wrestling and women's wrestling? Because I'm really big into a lot of that stuff too. Yep. I'm really big into like the women's wrestling, especially in Japan. Yeah. So, um, I saw a video a long time ago of Kana. Okay. Uh, yeah, back before you know, before she joined NXT, I was like, "That's she's pretty fucking cool." And I started reading about her, and then like Yoshiari and uh, uh, which they just changed her name now. Now she's in NXT. Oh, she's in NXT as Carrie Sand. She was Carrie Hojo. Yeah, Carrie Hojo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think it was like stardom and Japanese women's wrestling that where I was kind of like, oh, that's really cool. They take it seriously. I think that's the thing that that sort of won me over because for those you know, there was a long time obviously where American wrestling didn't take women's wrestling too seriously. Oh yeah, we definitely went through like the the bra and panties era, and then right. they tried to clean it up at times, and there was some cool stuff in the middle of that, but they still yeah. didn't get the time. It would be like, you know, five-minute matches or whatever. There's a few people that kind of stuck out, but they had to, like, work, like, a million times harder than everybody else. You know, you had the Litas and the Trish Stratuses yeah. and, you know, stuff like that. But it was still in the middle of that whole, like, bra and panties era of, you know, the WWE where they didn't, you know, take it seriously. Yeah. So I, that's what won me over with Japan. And then Gail Kim and Awesome Kong. Oh yeah, they had their series of matches over at Impact. They were also the, like the highest-rated Impact segments at certain points throughout the uh, throughout the history of the show. Yeah, and with Impact, I always thought the Knockouts Division Impact was always pretty consistent, even while sort of WWE was go still going through their Divas era, their Bra and Panties yeah. era. TNA was still like was had a consistent knockouts division throughout all the years, even today, you know. So that's always something yeah. no matter what else went on through that company, the ups and downs, like they always had a really consistent knockouts division. I think so. And I, I think like those are all things I drew inspiration from. I mean, even today you have uh you have characters right now like Rosemary and Sue Yang. Who look like they came out of a comic book. Hell yeah, yeah. So uh the two of them are, are definitely like things that that was like, okay, well, one, cruiserweights went away for a while. That was the other thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I realized that women's wrestling was a lot like the cruiserweights. 
And so I really, you know, I was a big fan of WCW growing up. And when WCW went away, I, you know, all those things sort of came together. And I was like, indie wrestling, women's wrestling, those two things. Uh, it sort of felt, it sort of filled that gap that I wasn't getting from Monday Night Raw uh, and SmackDown. So that's really what drew me into it. All right, yeah, it's, yeah, like, um, yeah. After like WCW went away, they had that that great cruiserweight division, and um, recently um, on Eric Bischoff's podcast, he talks about a lot of that on eighty three weeks, you know, about the the cruiserweight division, and um, but yeah, after that went away, you know, you had that time period in WWE uh, where there were still like, you know, it's the big guys, the big muscular guys, but then the sort of independence you know, had the smaller guys that were coming up, getting bigger. And then, then those guys, you know, came to the WWE and you had people like, you know, Daniel Bryan and CM Punk were these smaller guys that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't, you know, the fans loved and they couldn't deny that they're, they're star power anymore. Yeah, I mean, Seth Rollins is a great example. Oh, yeah. Uh, Seth Rollins was, you know, Tyler Black and they, uh, I remember Jim Cornette ripping him and saying, you know, you would never... Never amount to anything, never go anywhere. And now Seth Rollins is probably the top WWE guy that they have uh, at the moment. And so, like, that's another one where, you know, he's not a big dude. Like, I am taller. I am physically taller, at least, than Seth Rollins. I'm 6'4". Uh, but he could still put on these great matches. And so, yeah, I, it, it definitely is changing. Uh, but you know, for a long time, it was very static. And that's, yeah, that's what drew me towards the Indies in the first place was it was something very different. And, you know, from, you know, and you kind of touched on it before, you know, in your opinion, like the world of pro wrestling, you know, how does that sort of, you know, parallel to like the comic book world into all these fantasy worlds? Yeah, I mean, it's, I just tell people all the time, it's a live action comic book. Like that's, that's how I approach pro wrestling because people go, oh, you watch that stuff? I'm like, yeah, I, do you like comic books? Yeah. Well, it's a live action comic book. <laughs> like just look at Sue Yang and Rosemary. I know I just used them as an example, but like. They look like they came out of a comic book. Even Allie as like the uh, the demon slayer right. is also something that you would see in a comic book. She's no different than Buffy in, in a lot of respects. So uh, the parallels are all there. I think the only difference is, you know, uh, you you get to know the people behind the scenes. And that, that's, that to me is the only real parallel where, or the only real difference where, uh, you know, Rosemary is Rosemary, but behind the scenes, you know, she was Courtney Rush and she was... Uh, she's this whole other person. So you'll have that with comics. You know, when you're done reading Justice League for the month, that's it. <laughs> There's no connection to Justice League until the next issue. Right, right. right, right. When, it, um, when it sort of comes to your, your life and your career, you know, what lessons can someone sort of extract from, from it all that they could you know, apply to their own lives to sort of whatever their career is? Yeah, so uh, this is true, especially in the United States where a lot of people are successful because of who they know uh, or because they had money. You know, like it, there's the old self-help book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and he's constantly talking about Andrew Carnegie, but what he doesn't, what Dale Carnegie doesn't tell you is that Andrew Carnegie only became rich because of what's basically known as insider trading today. <laughs> <laughs> like it wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened today, uh, but that's how Andrew Carnegie first made all his money. And so... Uh, you know, I'm the perfect example of someone who was successful and didn't know anybody. I am not wealthy. Like, I am not well-connected. Like, I spend most of my life in upstate New York, uh, Glens Falls, Potsdam, Buffalo. You know, like, these are not uh, big cities known in the entertainment or comic book business. 
And so if I can, like, I, I know it sounds cliche, but if I can do it, then there's absolutely zero reason why anybody else can do it. So I, I like to think that I'm proof that, like, if you stick with it long enough, then, then you really could have an agent come to, which is what happened with me. Like, one day out of the blue, an agent was like, hey, I like your stuff. Uh, would you would you like to talk? I said, yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I just think it's, it's just proof that you have to stick with it because I've been doing the writing thing forever. I've been doing comics since 2002. Uh, it's only recently that I decided to to put out an actual book for people to buy. But, I mean, I've been at it since 2002, putting shitty web comics out there uh, <laughs> over and over and over again until I was really good at the format and the platform. And so I think it's just taking from my life the lesson is you just stick with it. When, you know, sort of going through all this, you know, this journey that you've been going through, you know, has there been, you know, people that you've been able to turn to for advice and how important is to, you know, is it to have those people to turn to? And has there been people that have come to you for advice? Yeah, it's more, it's definitely more people coming to me. I, there's maybe like, I can count on one hand, the number of people over the past, I would say I've been at this since 1998. So over the past 20 years, like I can count on one hand, people I might go to for advice. There's not many of them. Uh, it's really more people coming to me for advice. I found that for me, I just read books. Like I'm constantly, like right now I have, I have six books on my desk right now uh, <laughs> in varying states of progress. Uh, and there's, that's sort of how I got, like uh, downstairs I have a bookcase of at least 17 books about how to write comics, how to publish comics, you know, like, uh, you know, I have uh, books on marketing. Like I have entire stuff. Like that's generally how I learn things, is just reading and reading and reading. And, and that's not for everybody. Like I think it's definitely good to have someone sort of guide you. I wish uh, I had met my friend Phil, who was a successful CEO, much much earlier than I did in my life, because uh, he's definitely someone that I could pull advice from. But it's more people coming to me for advice, and I'm happy to give it because I really didn't have too many people to go to. Is there anything that you, you know, personally learn when people come to you for advice, you know, from talking with them? Is there anything that you learned from them? Yeah, I always look for commonalities because uh, it doesn't matter your background, race, religion, uh, creativity, like none of that stuff matters because what you find is over and over again, you keep hearing the same things. Like you hear uh, these issues of doubt or you hear these issues of I'm not well connected or I'm not wealthy or so when I do talk to people, it, it, these things get reaffirmed so that when I do work on giving advice, I know the advice is going to be useful. And that's sort of important to me. Like, I always want to make sure if I am going to give people advice, uh, you know, like you talked about marketing being situational, which it is, but life advice uh, is generally universal because we're all, we're all sort of regurgitating stuff from the Bible anyway. Uh, <laughs> right. even, even if you're an atheist like me, like you're still... You know, working hard and, you know, uh, showing up like that's all stuff from the Bible. Uh, how to win friends and influence people was a ripoff of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was just a ripoff of the Bible and Shakespeare. So uh, I think that, you know, finding those threads and making sure that the advice is applicable to everyone, regardless of who they are, or where they come from, uh, is, is really important to me. And that's the thing that I get out of giving advice to people. I always like to uh, end my interviews by asking the same question, and that is, you know, who is somebody that's been a part of your life or career that I could realistically interview that would have some good stories or lessons to, to talk about? 
Uh, yeah, I, you know, the person that I would recommend is, uh, there's a few, but the one that immediately comes to mind is Rosie Tran. Uh, Rosie, she's hilarious. One, she's hilarious. Uh, two, she, she's one of those people that there seems to be like his glass ceiling. Like there seems to be on the internet and all the advice that I talk about in this interview that you can only go so far. Uh, you know, so like she's had, she's been on TV. She's had roles in like, uh, shit. Oh, I think it was called Raising Hope okay. on Fox. Like, you know, she was like the nurse in Raising Hope. Uh, but she hasn't had like that big breakout. And so the question then becomes, all right, well, you're successful. You're a great comedian. Uh, you make a living being a comedian. You've got these bit roles on TV. Uh, is that good enough? And can you make a satisfactory life? And can you, and what do you do? Do you just keep going? And so she, to me, is that great example of, I, like, I see a lot of myself in her. Uh, you know, I've written this book, but I haven't had that big breakout. And so what do you do? And then what you find is that 99% of creatives fall into this group where of Rosie and I. And, you know, I take inspiration from her constantly plugging away. And that sort of feeds into me constantly wanting to plug away. And she's always had this great attitude. And uh, I always marvel at, at her just sort of grinding. And, and that's, like I said, that's that's the secret to everything is just grinding away. And I feel like she's a great example of that. Great. Yeah, it's been great talking with you, man. And uh, if anybody wants to, you know, find out more information about anything that you're doing, where can they go online? Yeah, just go to bjmendelson.com. Uh, my phone number's on there. Don't call me because I won't answer. Uh, but, if you, but if you text me, like I, I will text you back because uh, I'm always happy to do that. That's how I keep in touch with everybody. And if you like comics and pro wrestling, follow me on Twitter at BJ Mendelson. If you don't like comics and wrestling, don't follow me because that's all you're going to get uh, from that Twitter account. So, yeah, that's, that's the place to do it. All right, man. Great. It's been great talking with you. A lot of great stories and uh, good lessons to, uh, to be heard. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, man. It's been good talking with you, man. Yep. I'll catch you soon. All right. So that was my interview with BJ Mendelson. Like always, there's always more information on the show notes for this episode at freshisthepodcast.com. Now on to the fresh of the word, freshest pick of the week. And this episode's pick is the comic book, We Are the Danger, released via Black Mask Studios. I'm totally a sucker for a good music story in the comic book world. This comic starts off with Julie a new girl in her high school, just entering her senior year. Things are not starting off well, like a lot of high school stories that we all know too well, until she meets Tabitha, and they end up becoming friends and starting a band. Written and illustrated by Fabian Lillet, there is an authenticity about We Are the Danger, with those sort of wide-eyed feelings any music lover had when they were young, and everything was just a new horizon. The comic book is also very vivid, with help from artist Claudia Aguirre. I'm a firm believer that you can't represent a good music story without the whole package. And We Are the Danger, number one, sets the mood and visuals for a topic that reminds us the power of music. So this week's fresh pick of the week is We Are the Danger, released via Black Mask Studios. And that's about it for this episode of Fresh is the Word. And before we get out of here, I just want to remind you how you can support the podcast. You can always go to freshofthepodcast.com and share any links that you see on the website on any of your social media. That always helps. You can subscribe to Fresh as the Word on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, Google Play, and TuneIn. And definitely, if you can, leave a rating and a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. And if I do see it, I will definitely read it on an upcoming episode. 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly Omega Fresh, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash kfresh. And you can also follow, so um, fresh is the word, online on Twitter at FITW Podcast, on Instagram at fresh is the word podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash fresh is the podcast, and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash fresh is the word podcast. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. Goodbye and good night. Fresh, 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 fresh is the word.